0: Hello, and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Awabakal people on whose unceded lands I'm on today and pay my respects to elders past and present. Our guest today, Valerie Werder, is fiction writer, recovering art worker, uh, and doctoral candidate in film and visual studies at Harvard. Her writing has been published in Public Culture, Bomb, and Flash Art, performed at Participant uh, Inc. in New York, Art Space in New Haven. And uh, Valerie is a 2023 Penn America Prison and Justice Writing Program mentor. We maybe talk about that later if we get time for that. Um, and uh, she lives in Somerville, Massachusetts, with a black cat and hundreds of books. So uh, her debut novel, fantastic debut novel, Thieves which is the subject of our conversation today, won the Fence Modern Prize in Prose Fiction, oh, Prose Modern Prize in Prose. <laughs> Valerie, welcome. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be here. Um, now, I wonder if it's okay with you if we just actually begin the session by just giving people a flavor of the book. It's, it's really quite um, quite unique uh, in many ways, and I think we'll talk about some of those ways, but just to situate it, if we can hear, hear it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll um, I'll read from the very first uh, pages of the novel, and um, the main character, like myself, is named Valerie. And here we find her uh, sitting at her desk at work um, at an art gallery and essentially having some kind of uh, uh, internal crisis, uh, whether or not to leave her job. Um, so... Here we go, this is the first chapter of Thieves. Valerie often played a game. Because the game had no other players, she didn't feel obliged to give it a name or a straightforward set of rules. The goal was this, to gut herself of her usual contents and become another thing entirely by taking the subway to an unfamiliar station and wandering its vicinity in concentric circles, no thoughts in her head or by sitting through a matinee at the theater on Sixth Avenue and draining herself of language until she was, at most, a mass of buzzing static in a creaking seat. She didn't fully trust the game. The problem wasn't its premise. Likely depriving a body of its context and contents would transform it into something other than it was. No, the problem was much more practical. The game was, at the end of the day, impossible to play for real. Valerie couldn't scoop out her insides or turn herself placeless. Whatever she was, she couldn't get rid of her body. She didn't remember how it started. Maybe in response to a phrase encountered on a motivational poster in her high school girl's locker room or as an epigraph to a soft cover self-help book in her analyst's foyer. Wherever you go, there you are, or there's no escaping yourself. Likely she'd lodged complaints against the poster while pulling on ankle socks or straining to overhear her analyst analyze the preceding patient. Likely she'd interrogated the poster or book on who its addressee, that slippery you, actually was. Most games begin innocently enough. Valerie found herself gradually forced to up the no context game's stakes to reap its rewards. The last time she'd played had also been the most serious. She sat at her desk at work, tracking the receptionist, Sylvie, on the art gallery's surveillance footage software. It was, by all metrics, a normal workday. Valerie assembling strings of words meant to sell objects, Sylvie orchestrating deliveries and recognizing recognizable faces at the front desk. At 2 p.m., the swarm of pixels that spelled Sylvie stepped outside for a smoke break, and Valerie hurried downstairs to join her. The two walked in diagonals around each other to ward off the late winter cold, amusing themselves by comparing stories. Sylvie. I have to research and order at least 12 different brands of espresso from five different countries because the Japanese collector was offended that Emilio only had Ethiopian when he came to look at the Basquiat. Valerie. Did you hear that Nick had to fly to Milan yesterday to pick up the catalogs for the opening? Out of the blue, They didn't even let him go home to change, and he didn't even have time to leave the airport once he got there. The printer met him outside Terminal 1 with a box, and he caught the red eye back an hour later. Sylvie. FedEx couldn't ship the catalogs here in time? Valerie. They're big books, really heavy. Flying flying him out was cheaper. They're at my desk if you want to come take a look. Sylvie. Fuck, I wish I'd known. I would have asked him to get some coffee from the duty-free while he was at it. But the Japanese don't mind Italian espresso. She stopped and took a drag to finesse her joke. Ah, oh, shit, never mind. Italian espresso could have been grown anywhere, huh? Valerie. Yeah, anywhere except Italy. Valerie returned to her desk and stared at the catalogs in their mute brown boxes, sealed with shiny packing tape and stamped in two languages from international travel. She had written these books, the catalog texts, the introduction by the gallery owner, and the neatly laid out and illustrated chronology charting the artist's life. The main essay by the famous academic, a former professor of hers who told her that he was busy, much too busy to compile my notes into a proper text, but perhaps you'd like to take a stab at it. She took a stab at it, scrapping his notes and inventing anew, and he thanked her for being a wonderful copy editor and barely touching my words at all. And she sealed the envelope containing his $7,000 fee and instructed the designer as to how large precisely the byline should be. She paid for image rights, checked captions and citations, organized the material in in chronological order, situated the story she'd created into the larger story, the better story, the story of art. She wrote the press release made up quotes about how pleased the gallery was so pleased to represent the artist and how thrilled the estate was so thrilled to work with the gallery. She drafted sales pitches and highlights lists conducted interviews from the gallery owners email address with reporters who addressed her by the gallery owners name dear Helene the exhibition would be good, the work would sell. Valerie hadn't seen the paintings in person. She hadn't needed to. The language wrote itself. I think that's where I'll stop.
0: That's great, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And uh, you know, that's a pivotal passage. Um, I, I I don't know if it's a spoiler. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the, the passage comes back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um. But there's a lot in that and and you know, so much uh, to unpick really in, in many ways, I mean, for the first first thing I, I'd love to talk about is just the whole notion of the game itself um, mm-hmm. that that Valerie is playing. I mean, in many ways, the game could be uh, you know a positive thing. It could be a negative thing. It has some sinister overtones, but also it, it's the book itself, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, this is a great first question because you're exactly <laughs> right, and it's something I've been thinking about so often lately. Is um, this idea of a game and um, precisely the idea of a game as um, something that uh, can be a game of manipulation in which two players are or, or two opposing sides are kind of oriented against each other versus a game that two people are or are playing together kind of on the same team creating uh, an imaginal reality um, and I think that in the book Valerie is doing both, and she's also playing games with herself. Um, I think that uh, oh, yeah, the her kind of her her primary game she calls the no context game, and she has this idea that um, the self is ultimately this uh kind of um that there's a that there's a kind of internal void um, and that if she emplaces herself in different contexts around different people she will become another thing um and i think that this is both productive and destructive to her um it it allows her to be a kind of self that proliferates throughout the book. So you have multiple versions of Valerie. You have uh, Valerie who works at an art gallery, but then also um, Valerie, who acts in uh, in the main character's subconscious and her dreams. You have a voice that is that emits from gallery that that emits from Valerie, um, but uh, is writing academic texts or is writing these press releases or catalog essays that then fall under someone else's name. Um, And then you have a Valerie who is struggling uh, throughout the the novel to to create herself, to create uh, herself as a being who can speak uh, with a voice. Um, And so there's this notion that uh, because she does not see herself as a Coherent um, and stable entity in time, that essentially she can populate her world with different versions of herself and put them into play with each other, um, and uh, and I think that that's something that I really attempted to do in the novel's structure. Um, she also plays games with other characters in the book. So um, she has a sibling, Julie. Um, a uh, younger sister who she plays uh, weeks-long games with when they're very young. And then these games um, evolve into a game of shoplifting. Um, and uh, the the two sisters begin shoplifting at a local CVS uh, as part of a, a game of kind of daring each other. And what they're daring each other to become is... Um, uh, is essentially adolescents or preteens from out out of childhood into kind of pre-teenagerhood. So with this jump, the the game uh, of like childhood games, um, uh, imagination fantasy games, takes a leap into the increased stakes of uh, a game at a store where you can get caught. Um, But the game is let's steal makeup so that we can transform ourselves into different characters, because once we're wearing makeup, you know, we'll be um, we'll be older, we'll be glamorous. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this game evolves into a later shoplifting game with one of Valerie's male partners, Ted. Um, And again, the game is well, let's, let's try to transform ourselves into different identities by the products that we're stealing. Um, we're going to kind of game the system of commodity capitalism by stealing. Um, and we're also going to game the system of fixed identity um, which says like, okay, you have a certain income so you can buy certain clothes, you can live in a certain area, you can be a certain person. Valerie and Ted think, you know, well, Perhaps if we, perhaps if we were stealing everything, we could, we could game this as well. Um, and I think that these games come from uh, a kind of a genuine philosophical interrogation that Valerie wants to perform on the self. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are also rife with manipulation, um, danger, desire, uh, desire, um, a bit of entitlement. Um, yeah. So so the game is never a, a simple thing.
0: Yeah. And and in many ways it buys into it's subversive at the same time as it buys into these tropes that are being used to actually sell those products that they're stealing in the first place. It mm-hmm. kind of accepts them as a given that, you know, once you have the makeup on, you are in fact. Um, a different person, you're, you know, more sophisticated, more mature, whatever, you know, so it's, it's a really interesting, um, I'll call it a cognitive dissonance that you create in the reader, who is uh, a particularly, maybe, I don't know if I want to say this, but, you know, I guess maybe there's something um, about the female reader. Um, Mm -hmm. That's why I'm hesitant to say it. But I, you know, I do feel like we grow up with a lot of those tropes. They're very much Mm -hmm. embedded in our bodies, and I think we fight them. So, but fight them and buy into them as well. You know, we're still clicking. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. still clicking sometimes. And then I'm like, what the heck? I don't need that. <laughs> so, you know, it, I, I feel that duality and it's such a, it, it's such a powerful, I guess, underlying thrust in the book um, that mm-hmm. moves it forward. I mean, at the same time, right. This game of disappearing that you talk mm-hmm. about it, that's what meditation is. Right. And you, you tweet, you, you know, you, um you also flag that when you talk about, you know, you use, Buddhist lines like wherever you go there you are right so it's Mm -hmm. it it really is um there's so many things that seem to happen in a kind of compression way
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I this this idea of there being a particular reader and a and a particularly female reader who has to grapple with this um I I think is spot on um because as a woman, there is a, you are kind of inundated with the injunction to uh, resemble an image um, that is uh, is external to you and that you internalize and then begin to wear on your skin as a face, as a self. Um, And I'll speak particularly as a white American woman um, to kind of so closely resemble um, a cliche of, heteronormativity of um uh, yeah like consumerist capitalism um it it becomes a kind of disturbing performance where you find uh, valerie often finds herself in the book um staring at images of advertisements or even conversing with or being kind of hailed as if these advertisements were gods that were like oh no come come to us you know come be us um, she's, she's hailed to both uh, like internalize and metabolize and then perform the cliche image of the ideal woman. And she also hates this image. Um, And so she wants to do battle with it, uh, do battle against it. And yet it has become her. Um, So I think a question that she grapples with is, well, how do I kill this image that I am? Um, How do I Disappear myself from the system that demands that I appear in a particular way, and yet not do away with myself entirely, not obliterate, um, you know, something core or in, internal to me. And I think that uh, <laughs> the way that you picked up on Buddhist philosophy, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that before. But there is something seductive about. Um, like an alternative doc- doctrine uh, not a misogynistic capitalist uh, uh, kind of image-based culture but a spiritual doctrine that says oh you can disappear yourself and don't worry you won't be a kind of void or mannequin if you disappear all of the cliches and all of the kind of external injunctions this will be a kind of positive emptying out
0: um it's and, a different kind of desire that she seems to be drawn to simultaneously.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Almost,
0: almost like a little underlying threat that that sense of you know connectiveness, if you like, what draws mm-hmm. her to Ted, even as that dysfunctional relationship. You know, she still yeah. wants that connection. She wants something. Yeah, yeah. She she really does want something, and this idea of connection
1: um, is. <sighs> Oh God, I, I'm, I'm gonna speak about connection and then I want to loop back to um the idea of the female reader as well. Um uh, because I think that uh for Valerie, there's a kind of uh, capitalism, uh specifically global neoliberal capitalism performs this um kind of uh almost hallucinatory connectiveness where you look at a particular commodity like i'm 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 holding a vitamin water right now and um uh and this uh commodity it it connects me to this invisible web of people who made possible the appearance of this commodity in my ha- in my hands um, but i can't see them and i don't know them they made possible though the fact that i'm not like coughing and you know like my voice is my voice is performing well in this interview like i can take a sip of my vitamin water so there's this whole support system here that is totally invisibilized and valerie is so immersed in the in the world of sales she works in art galleries selling art objects um and so she is one of those invisibilized workers that produces valuable commodities um, uh, by producing sales text for artworks, so she disappears in the web of relation that is the art world, and yet she is also imbricated in this larger invisible web of relation that is um, capitalism, Uh, and it's true that this implants within her a really strong desire for genuine non transactional relation. Um, and she can't, She she she's desperately seeking it and can't seem to find it. Or when she does seem to find it, it's another hall of mirrors that soon collapses into transactional relation. Um, and oh, I'm, I'm not sure whether to go back to, to what I was going to say before or not. Um, Perhaps well, this, I will and you can just pick up. Yeah. yeah, you
0: know, that's fine. I mean, there's so much just in, you know, in the whole notion of the art world and what she's working into. I mean, she does get what she's asked for, right? Like she, the ultimate disappearance is to become the voice mm-hmm. of the gallery, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and to like disappear entirely into these books that nobody even reads, um, mm-hmm. you know, that are beautiful objects in and of themselves, but they don't even. They don't even have any yeah. value whatsoever, right? There, are like they're yeah. part of that trans. What what is beautiful, and some of the art is, you know, obviously exquisite, but it becomes transactional. And so this again, this tension that you raise, which I think is, you know, really a, a, such a powerful um, part of the book and how it works, is this tension between, you know, the commodification of what of of the real and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the, mm-hmm. you know, the connectiveness and but also, you know, there is a real piece of art somewhere in there, <laughs> you, mm-hmm. know, box it it, you know, maybe boxed up and, you know, there is a moment I think in the book where um one of the uh, collectors um, who also is I think the same person I may be getting this wrong but the same person who actually sends Valerie on the uh, trail to write a book and and kind of Mm -hmm. sends her off as well um who says I'm not even going to put that on my wall right it's just going into storage until I can trade it again for more money like it just becomes Mm -hmm. fun you know this fungible this notion of fungible and I've never got my head around the um the idea either of of these you know fungible online artworks that you don't even you know I've often wondered well can can you print it and hang it like (laughs) where's the actual aesthetic quality to this that you know is being utilized? because I understand a painting right but the whole notion of this thing that you buy well it's like a stock right you buy it it appreciates and and then Mm -hmm. you trade it when it's up and then you make your money or you know it goes down that's your gamble but all Mm -hmm. of these notions are playing out in in the work that Valerie is doing which has Mm -hmm. disappeared her at the same time as it's put her to work
1: yeah, yeah, that's um, the idea of the the kind of disappearance of Valerie into a language that is not read and is not equivalent to the artworks that she's writing about, because her job is to write sales texts or um, exhibition wall texts that describe a work or catalog essays for these catalogs that are kind of vanity books. Um, uh, And uh, oftentimes she doesn't even see the artworks that she's writing about. She's sent um, images uh, and the artwork is being flown from storage in like one storage facility uh, in I don't know, Geneva, Switzerland, to another storage facility in Delaware, both of which are uh, duty-free and tax-free. So um, the artwork uh, is really just, as you say, um, the artwork almost ceases to exist. It is simply uh, this kind of... uh, Invisible. Well, it's a Yes, exactly. It's an invisible core inside a cardboard box, and everything that circulates around it in the world—it's financial value, the language, the images. um, Those things are really constituting the value of the art object that doesn't have to be seen anymore. Um, And and something that I was thinking about as you were speaking, and something that I uh, that kind of connects back to this idea of the. the reader uh, or the addressee of the book in particular being a kind of female subjectivity um, is the fact that um, when I was writing, so I never, I don't have any formal creative writing training. I never, I I don't have an MFA. I never took a creative writing class even. Um, All of my training in writing was Um, I I also worked in galleries, and I had the same job as Valerie, obviously, in the book. Um, So I learned how to write um, by producing this very beautiful, almost meaningless text to describe objects that I'd never seen. Um, And so when I wrote the book, I thought, well, it would be quite interesting to really um, like issue and push away this kind of contemporary literary fiction, um, like injunction to be kind of quite clipped and precise and the the, the very like trite cliche of like show and don't tell. Um, uh, I, I thought, well, you know, what if I was to write a novel in this like scintillatingly beautiful and seductive language of sales? Um, And uh, the novel is constructed so that it shifts from the third person um, to the second person to the first person. And it's precisely when Valerie begins to occupy a kind of um, seductive, um, uh, subversive, and yet gullible um, female identity um, when she decides that she's going to leave her job. and begin shoplifting with Ted and take advantage of the fact that she appears in the world as this um, like beautiful cliche to really get away with some some foolishness, some shoplifting. Um, And it's at that moment that I decided to switch to the second person voice. So suddenly the reader fights um, herself or, or himself or themselves addressed as you. Um, and what I want to propose that I hadn't thought of before this is that there's a par- that there's a kind of particular drawing of the reader into a gendered subjectivity in the moment that the book begins addressing them as you. So uh, a female reader who has uh, identified with a particularly uh, a particular gendered subjectivity throughout her entire life. Um, may feel a particular identification with this you like it's you know it's hailing you as something that you've continually been hailed as as a woman Um, and yet uh, I hope that the book will have readers who are not just women uh, readers of many genders Um, and I think that uh, what I wanted to do to this to the to my reader in this moment was to not allow them any escape into a kind of um, misogynistic or patriarchal judgment of Valerie, like, oh, how could she be so foolish as to think that she's being subversive, as to think that shoplifting could allow her to escape capitalism. Um, I wanted to really pin them down and fix them in the embodied position in the voice of Valerie by saying, no, you, you are doing this. Um, You're complicit. mm -hmm, Exactly. And, yeah.
0: and how can we not as readers, you know, regardless of, of gender, I think, but um, I, I think the identification definitely is one that uh, I think a female will get that sense of being, maybe even that sense of being um, pulled towards mm-hmm. the representation that those objects that are being stole. Stolen, um, it con you know um, connotate like this notion of uh, you you have a line. I mean, this is right in the beginning, and we did start talking about this that you know um, the more Valerie stole, the smoother her skin, <laughs> the shinier her hair, the deeper the pigment smudged on her face. You know that there is a correlation between. Um, kind of, you know, immersing yourself into this almost as if you were the character. And so that pull in, um, you feel it, but you also feel complicit, you feel like, um, you know, there is something a little bit naughty about taking, um, you know, what does that mean? What what is, you know, what's implicit and, you know, about potentially getting caught? And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What what will that do? Will that end it will that end what's going on you know is that the end point that we're looking towards being caught and then saying okay that's it you know it's all over now
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah well
1: I mean I I don't think that uh, I'm not sure I don't think this is a book that really can be spoiled too much there's definitely yeah, I, like I don't a think so excitingly that's excitingly climactic yes. plot yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not a a big reveal to say that at a certain point um, Valerie does get caught shoplifting, and it's this it's this moment that um, the moment shifts from the second person voice to the first person voice, um, and so. When I say that, it might be very easy for listeners to think like, oh, well, being caught is this moment where she kind of comes to herself and comes to her senses and realize like, oh, no, this is my this is my identity. I have an eye. I can speak. Um, now it's the first person narrative. I have
0: found myself or, or um, worse because I feel like. One of the things that happens when she's caught is that um, we realize at least, I don't know if it's dramatic irony, because I'm not sure if she does, maybe she does, um, that she's been manipulated in many ways Mm -hmm. to that point as well. You know, it feels Mm -hmm. very clear that that, that, you know, that wasn't um, entirely an accident, that being caught. Mm -mm. No, yeah.
1: Um, I don't think that Valerie realizes it, Mm -hmm. but what does happen is that instead of first person voice and this act of this kind of act of being caught Mm -hmm. producing a kind of like coherent stable self to finish out the book um instead more and more parts of Valerie begin to drop away um until the first person voice is really just this like frantic searching extremely lost and placeless voice um that has absolutely no idea what it's doing that has lost all mooring um and I really wanted, uh, so so she leaves, she leaves New York. She's no longer with uh, Ted, her shoplifting paramour. She's not at the gallery. Um, she barely has any money left. Um, and she becomes obsessed with figuring, with like piecing together um, who this person was who manipulated her so thoroughly, this uh, shifty shoplifting uh, character, Ted. Um, and, so she she begins this series of phone calls to try to figure out who he was, who he is, um, and she can't figure it out. And she becomes um, she really just becomes her obsession with him. Um, and uh, when I was writing the book, it, I ended it that way and, you know, sent the manuscript to my editor a few times just Ending with her with this kind of like dissolution of Valerie, but I wasn't satisfied with it, um, and so I decided to add one final page in the impersonal. So there's this last <laughs> page for um, as the the being that can kind of come back when all subjectivity has been lost, um, and it, it's it's a really um, yeah I'm I'm really fond of that page. So suddenly it's like well, when, when one does this, when one does that, if one was to do this, if one was to do that, um, and, and suddenly Valerie is gone, but there's something, like something is still left, even after all of Valerie has disappeared from the book.
0: Yes, yes, I, you know, it... I can't deny either. And maybe it's just because I'm in the system myself um, that I felt relief <laughs> returned to the gallery. I mean, there's also lots and lots of things that happen through that that whole segment um, in the trailer uh, when she's run away trying to identify Ted um, self- plagiarism for one thing, which is really quite funny, mm-hmm. um, that she would be caught copying herself as if that yeah. was, you know that were the <laughs> ultimate crime. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, she, um, well, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to be forced to perform anymore. She wants to kind of cease to exist. And yet she has this entire body of work, this body of writing, this self, this physical body that has constituted her life. And so she's like, okay, well, I don't want to be productive anymore. I don't want to make this thing that is Valerie. I don't but want I to write. To live. Um <laughs> but i need to live so i'm going to use all of my former self everything i've ever written um and i'm going to kind of just mine that as raw material for the time being um until i can uh, until the day comes when i may want to construct a new self or a different self place myself in a in a new game um and she gets caught you're right she her her boss detects that she is self plagiarizing and um uh there was a, the, the email that the boss sends, um, is actually a email that my boss, um, sent to me once, lightly edited. So a lot of the emails. (laughs) Would (laughs) you plagiarize? Yeah, of course. So, um, there's a lot of actual plagiarism in the book. I, a lot of the emails, a lot of the academic essays, um, the catalog texts are things that I actually, um, that that were emails that were sent to me or things that I had written. Um, So self-plagiarism is not only a narrative conceit, but a formal conceit. Um, And uh, I I did get caught for um, self-plagiarizing when I worked at the gallery. But I haven't yet gotten caught for stealing uh, my boss's personal emails and putting them in a public work of fiction. So <laughs> we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully they are not listeners of Compulsive Reader podcasts. Uh, yeah, yes, probably not.
0: <laughs> um, but, you know, they, I think also the whole notion of plagiarism, you know, then becomes quite interesting when we start looking at, you know, uh, what is, you know, you you have recontextualized these to such an extent that, you um, they really are in many ways shockingly original at the same time as they're plagiarized. So again, that duality, like it would be a hard case for a lawyer. Yeah. And, then, and, and that's, you know, maybe, you know, we're starting to then and we're not going to get into this because we don't have time, although I'd love to. Maybe we'll have to do a follow up. Um, but, you know, what is ChatGPT doing and what is AI doing and how, you know, how do we begin to talk about plagiarism um, when we're in this other world where we can construct a reality by using, you know, a, 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 a string of commands? Mm -hmm. So, there's all those things kind of crackle at the edges of the book, which is exciting, you know, makes it really an exciting read. But we are actually almost out of time, amazingly. So, definitely have to do a follow up because I have a Mm -hmm. thousand more questions, which I haven't gotten to, um, you know, all about characters. I would love to do a follow up. uh, Yeah, Ravishing Red. There's so many things I want to talk about. But um, just to finish off, tell me about the novel that you're working on now, The Irascibles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, The Irascibles.
1: Absolutely. So um, after after I finished thieves, I thought, you know, this was so uh, I I had never I, I had no idea what I was doing, writing a novel. This was so painful to produce. I, I kind of it took so long to edit it um, because I, I I didn't sit down with like a plot or characters. Um, I just kind of started writing as a as a 25 year old uh, young woman. Um, and so when i started to think about the next novel i thought well i i want to see what i could do with a really tightly constructed plot and um and actually tap into genre um and i thought well wouldn't it be incredible to write a psychological thriller like psychological erotic thriller about the art world in the 90s um and i i figured out that there would be these, these I, the novel has three characters, um, uh, Elaine, Andrea, and Shen. Um, and uh, three are all participating in the art world, but they're never in the same room. They are connected through that kind of uh, invisible web of global capitalism. Um, and yet they're all in relations of dependence to each other. So Elaine is an artist, Andrea sells her artworks. Um, Jen, uh helps uh, uh, Elaine to produce the artworks. Um, and so all three are, are kind of related in this intimate nexus. Um, and they both want to depend on each other and, uh, and to kind of compete and one-up each other and to destroy each other. So here I really wanted to explore the ways in which um, in which capitalism puts us in these transactional relations that then become games of seduction, desire, um, in kind of induce murderous impulses in us, um, all in the service of creating art objects. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm at
0: work on that now. I'm
1: about uh, halfway through.
0: Oh, brilliant. That sounds so amazing. Um, alas, that is all we have time for. But Valerie, mm-hmm. thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, just want to go and have a little lie down and think about all those topics. Um, I will put details of the books on your website and in the show notes. So um, bye for now. Thank you so much. It was fantastic to talk.